This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Peter Conti-Brown, and he is an expert on central banks' financial history and the Federal Reserve. And if you are interested in those sorts of things, as I am and many of you are, well, then sit back and get ready to wonk out on some really interesting uh, stuff. He, he really has a, a in-depth grasp on not just central bank operations, but on the history of finance and the history of Federal Reserve in a way that most people simply can't do more than scratch the surface. So if you are at all interested in modern banking regulations, the politics at the Fed, what Greenspan and Bernanke did or should have done or didn't do, uh, and how the history of the Fed squares up with the modern era, you are in for a treat. So sit back with no further ado, my conversation with Peter Conti Brown. My guest this week is Peter Conti Brown. He is a professor at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, and he is the author of The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. He comes to us uh, by Harvard, where he was undergraduate. He got his Juris Doctor degree uh, at Stanford Law School, and then he earned a PhD at Princeton in, am I remembering this correctly, legal history? Is that no, right? No, it's uh, financial history. Financial actually. history, mm-hmm. even better for mm-hmm. our purposes. Peter Conti Brown, welcome to Bloomberg. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Barry. So I read one of your columns some time ago, and I kind of cracked up by a, a, a line within it, which we're all somewhat guilty of to some degree or another. You note something remarkable in the shelves of an old-fashioned library, which uses the Dewey Decimal System. Go to HG 2500 section, and you write, the shelves veritably groan under the weight of the conspiratorial tomes about the Federal Reserve. Why? Why are we so conspiracy-minded about America's central bank? Well, in some sense, it's the founding crisis, ideologically, right, Uh, militarily, uh, certainly politically, and that is, what is money and who gets to decide, Mm -hmm. right? The British said money has to consist of such and such and so and so with tariffs and stamps and this much silver associated with it while starving the colonies of the resources to deliver on that promise, or so asserts the Declaration of Independence, right? Well, fast forward a few years, the Revolutionary War is over, but then we get the, in the Washington administration, Alexander Hamilton on the one hand, Thomas Jefferson on the other, Lin-Manuel Miranda in the middle, right? right. <laughs> uh, and and uh, the reason I think that Hamilton the musical has succeeded so spectacularly, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius, um, but his other musicals, like In the Heights, right, also fabulous, but it, Hamilton the musical gets to this question. What is money? Who gets to decide? We fought about that forever. And we fought about it in ways where that become extremely technical very quickly. Alexander Hamilton was certainly a very technical expert on these issues. But unlike other areas of technical expertise, like, you know, hey, how do you get uh, a satellite into orbit, right? You don't have a lot of ideology around that. You just say, well, it's either, physics. It either, either works or it doesn't. Right. Either your trajectory is accurate or it's not, in which case, crash and burn. 
Now, with all respect to the Flat Earth Society and, you know, <laughs> moon landing was staged and that sort of thing, there are conspiracy theorists there, too. But the difference is, is that you don't use satellites to buy groceries, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you do use money to buy groceries. And so that intuition about what money should be and who gets to decide is shared by a lot of different people. And so there's a gap between what experts who themselves don't agree uh, say should be a proper financial system, a proper monetary system. And what we in all kinds of uh, identitarian factions, whether they're religious or political or, or geographical or, what, or whatever else, we say, well, no, that's wrong. Mm. And so I think the Fed is just this great collision of expertise, of ideology, of history, of politics, uh, of economics, of law. And that just produces a, a really pungent potion that attracts conspiratorial thinkers and uh, and experts alike. So let's talk about that explicitly, because it comes up so often. Um, the Creature from Jekyll Island, yeah. that book, which is now decades old. And, and it goes through a new edition every few years. That seems to be the source amongst the people I see as the conspiracy theorists as hey, this was doomed from the start, but you're a historian of, of financial markets. We could go back to the first Federal Reserve or the second Federal Reserve. In each case, there was a tremendous fear and skepticism in the 1800s about those banks. Mm -hmm. And each of them were, and I'll, I'll ask the question to you, each of those were imbued with a finite lifespan. Mm -hmm. So why did it take so long before America said, hey, we can't be the only major country that doesn't have a central bank. Yeah. You know, you asked, uh, you know, separately, one of the questions that you asked me was, you know, what are some un, uh, unnoted periods in financial history that mm -hmm. people don't think about that matter a lot? And there's one of them. In 1927, Congress passed a, a statute just on uh, right before the Great Depression that looked at the Federal Reserve Act and said the Federal Reserve was created just like the first and second banks of the United States with a 20-year charter. Mm-hmm. And so let's do some quick math. Federal Reserve Act of 1913 plus 20. 23. Uh, 1933. 33. 1933. Yeah. In the midst of the Great Depression, right? At a time when Franklin Roosevelt was not, uh, you know, representing these, uh, uh, these what his cousin Theodore had called the malefactors of great wealth, right? Um, would the Fed have been renewed in 1933? I think that's a really fascinating question, but we didn't have to ask it. Because in 1927... Uh, slipped five into years a, in advance. Five years in advance. Slipped in, you know, uh, uh, slipped in uh, to as a writer as a uh, to a much more controversial banking bill. They said, you know what, we're going to ex we're going to eliminate the need for a charter extension. This is going to be in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. um, what's so intriguing about that is in the Second Bank of the United States, that's exactly what the Second Bank's president Nicholas Biddle tried to do. His charter wasn't uh, up until 1836, and he slipped it in early because he thought, you know what, the bank is so popular that we can do this and we should do it early as opposed to letting it be a big controversial thing. This is one of the biggest miscalculations right in the 19th century because Andrew Jackson was able to harness uh, his own popularity against the bank, but we sometimes forget when the Second Bank of the United States failed, it failed because the Congress came just short at overriding Jackson's veto. 
it was still massively popular, just wasn't so popular that it could override a presidential veto. What were the politics of President Andrew Jackson that he was against renewing or turning that into a perpetual money machine? <laughs> this is uh, this is a great question and should remind our listeners uh, a lot about our present political situation. There are two stories that one tells about Andrew Jackson. So one is as this fierce, pugilistic populist, right? He wanted to take power and tear it down and push it down into the states and away from the federal government. That's certainly the vision that the Jacksonian Democrats carried with them through the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th. That's certainly at some points what Andrew Jackson saw himself to be, yeah, as is representing those had been uh, uh, disenfranchised, disempowered by Wall Street and the like. Um, I don't even that that far ago, even 150, that, 200 years ago, exactly, it was still 18, the same conversation. Same conversation, very similar. And I think that that's uh, that's a bit of uh, of revisionism by Jackson and his uh, descendants politically, who wanted to make a more coherent narrative than actually existed at the time. Mm-hmm. At the time. Jackson was much more like other politicians that we are, are probably going to come up in this conversation and just didn't like to have other power bases that threatened his control, mm-hmm. right? So there were times when he uh, would say, uh, Andrew Jackson would say uh, two different things that were, were together incoherent about his own monetary vision, things where he uh, hated the idea of paper money while simultaneously saying, let's uh, uh, send the economy a wash in paper money, but issued by state banks, right? Um, where he'd show real hostility to a gold-backed currency while simultaneously saying it's the only mechanism that he would approve of. So I don't think you can put an economic ideology on Andrew Jackson. I think efforts to do so uh, uh, fail to realize that Andrew Jackson, like Donald Trump, frankly, uh, say, you know, I am the source of decision-making. The idea that there would be another power base that could threaten my control over this uh, uh, system, that I can't abide. And so he went to war with Nicholas Biddle. And, hmm. uh, and I think that's the, that's the, the source of that conflict. Fascinating. Um, your, your students, grad students or undergrads or both? Both, both. everything. And executives and ah. PhD students. It's, uh, we, we really teach them all. So, so much has been going on in the world of banks since the financial crisis I have to ask you about Dodd-Frank and, and the changes to that. But before we get there, we now live in an era of mega banks. All the banks are really relatively giant compared to before the financial crisis. A number of pretty substantial banks were either acquired or or moved over. You, you have Washington Mutual and Wachovia and, you know, look at all these different banks, Bank America and... Uh, Merrill Lynch, um, all these giant conglomerations, how is the modern era of banking different than the way it existed prior to the financial crisis? You know, um, we've seen after the financial crisis uh, uh, essentially an unrivaled uh, concentration in the financial system, financial services. The, um, you know, just looking at commercial deposits, for example, uh, which include personal and commercial deposits. About seventeen trillion dollars, right, in the American. Uh, That's just checking and savings accounts. Checking and savings accounts for individuals and businesses and organizations. Um, mega banks, which we'll call above two hundred fifty billion dollars, mm-hmm. right? That's so about, that's things like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank America, Wells Fargo, and and much further down, it goes down to you know you know U.S. Bank and uh, uh, 
you know, PNC and, uh, you know, Fifth Third and other banks that you might think of as regional, but really have, you know, uh, a grown couple into under, some size, grown, grown in, into, into great size. Right. Because um, J.P. Morgan Chase, is at, uh, its balance sheet is trillions of dollars. Right. right? And Wells Fargo is above trillion dollars. So we're taking down almost a more order of magnitude smaller than that. But those are still very, very large banks. And they control about $13 trillion, right? 13 of the $16 trillion in, in these deposits. That's an extraordinary concentration, especially given that the number of institutions we're talking about uh, is a couple dozen. Right. This changes as banks' balance sheets change in size at the margin. But we are seeing financial services dominated by a handful of institutions. And, and we have not seen that really ever before in our history, um, including the great merger era of the late 19th century, where you saw trusts around sugar, oil, uh, corn, harvesting machines, right, fill in the blank. There are these, this is the great trust era. Uh, the Great Consolidation Era. But interestingly enough, uh, because of the structure of the U.S. political economy, banks were extremely decentralized by law. Um, each bank, for a very, very long time, uh, a bank couldn't have more than one branch. And even after that was changed in the late 1920s, they couldn't have branching across states. Mm -hmm. uh, and that wasn't finally abolished where you would have a bank doing business as its own institution across state lines uh, until uh, after 1980. What about the repeal of Glass-Steagall? What did that contribute towards banks bulking up? It's, it contributed a lot. So, um, I mean, this is, a, this is a point of some debate among economic historians. It's correlated, right, mm -hmm. with banks uh, uh, bulking up in, in, in pretty breathtaking fashion. What some economic historians say, well, that's correlated, but it wasn't caused by this. And we, we, Glass-Steagall was essentially unrelated to this size. Now, that's hard to swallow, at least in the short run after around Glass-Steagall's final legislative demise, because, of course, Citigroup <laughs> becomes Citigroup after right. its acquisition Travelers, of a... Travelers, Citi, it exactly. becomes the first megabank. Yeah. Uh, and so, but then again, you know, a few years after that, that was a pretty disastrous merger. They sold most of their insurance business because the synergies weren't present. And then mm -hmm. what becomes really the shining example of a megabank uh, J.P. Morgan chased, uh, and if we were list all of the names of the banks that they right. acquired along the way, we would include Hanover, Chemical. Uh, there's a whole lot. Uh, absolutely, uh, you know, uh, uh, the bank uh, first. Um, what was Jamie Dimon's bank that in Chicago? Uh, first National, is that mm -hmm. what it was called? And he, I believe he was at Smith Barney before that. Oh, and he was at City. He was Sandy Wiles' right-hand man in designing the the mega banking strategy. He loses in a power struggle, goes to manage his bank in Chicago, comes back in uh, J.P. Morgan Chase's acquisition, which was essentially an employment contract acquisition. Uh -huh. J Jamie Dimon becomes CEO. And J.P. Morgan Chase, with help from the federal government, uh, embarks on this strategy of just becoming as big as it can be. And so we are truly in an unprecedented era uh, in terms of, of banking consolidation in the United States. So everybody used to talk about too big to fail. I like to raise the question, have these banks become too big to succeed? Are they even manageable when you're running trillions of dollars in deposits? Can these things be managed? And that'll segue right into our discussion of Wells Fargo. Yeah. Such a great question. Too big to manage, too big to jail, too, too interlocked, to too big to succeed. 
And that the way that you phrase that too big to succeed is so fascinating because it calls into question the time horizon. In the short and medium term, I say that we're on a, on leading into a medium term from the financial crisis. Man, has it been good to be Jamie Dimon, <laughs> right? That is uh, that balance sheet is uh, that has been an extremely Fort- successful right bike. fortress. Diamond is just, it's it's an unassailable, they were very fortunate, you're a financial historian, you'll appreciate this, most people don't realize J.P. Morgan Chase had their own derivatives crisis, but they were, let's call it lucky enough or smart enough to have it years before everybody else, so they cleaned up their balance sheet while there was still a bid to hit. When it hit everybody else, they had nowhere to go. Yeah. Uh, You know, this is another... uh, uh, Occasion in financial history that a lot of people don't recognize, and I think this is Tim Geithner's signal contribution to uh, to finance in his career, and it happened before he was Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and that was in 2005-2007, noting on a, a spectacular back office problem in derivatives trading. Mm-hmm. Right? So these are all bespoke derivatives, right? Even even right. though they're not very fancy, these are pretty plain vanilla, but they all are bespoke because there's no, you know, there's no no marketplace for them yeah. to trade on. It's no exchange for them. And so you would think sophisticated folks in 2005. We're not talking about 1995, right? So the IT revolution has already taken pretty sure. deep root. Um, you'd have some sort of Oracle-based software system where traders with two headsets on, you know, talking to two different people, or at least punching it into a computer that would clear it and would be universally accessed. And you'd think that, and you'd be wrong, right? <laughs> and what they were doing instead is on scraps of paper with little golf pencils, writing down the nature of the trade as though they were signing, they were doctors signing a prescription, handing it back to a runner who would take that piece of paper and put it in a stack, right? And what Tim Geithner realized, even though he, the New York Fed had no supervisory authority over these broker dealers, that's a very important point, realized that the back office back log was about nine months. Wow. And so, if there's a triggering event, like an ISA, uh, uh, you know, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association Master Agreement, there's a default event within that nine months. You got traders said, "Hey, you owe me money." It's like, "Wait, do I?" They have to go literally back into nine months worth of scraps of paper to find where's this trade, right? Huge mess. Tim Guyton realizes it, and he does a tremendous effort coordinating the banks to clean up, modernize their back office. He succeeded right before the crisis. Amazing, absolutely amazing. So let's jump into a fascinating topic that uh, has been in the news for the past year or or more, and that's been this ongoing scandal at Wells Fargo. We we first learned about it uh, when it was revealed. The management of Wells Fargo greatly incentivized the staff to open new accounts, create new accounts. Uh, but they simultaneously penalized people who didn't do it. They would literally fire people. And it turned out the levels uh, at which they were subsequent uh, and significant consequences were exorbitantly high. 95% or so of the staff were not meeting the targets. And so when you incentivize people, they do what you ask. And the staff started creating fake accounts, not one or two here, but literally, I think we're up to three and a half million. Is that about right? That's about right. Yeah. So, so tell us how this came about and who should have been overseeing this. How does something as absurd as three million fake accounts come from a major bank like Wells Fargo? Hey, Barry, you framed this in a, in a, in a very particular way. and I completely, A little hostile? Am I too no, hostile? No, I completely to agree with your oh, framing. Okay. But John Stumpf, the former CEO of Wells, would absolutely reject it, right? So right. you flame framed it 
as a compensation structure and cultural problem and a supervisory one. Right. Right. And what Stumpf and Wells Fargo, they initially said is, no, what you're seeing is less than 2% of our employees engaging in some bad practices. That would be, that would happen in any organization. 2% right? of bank employees, that's a, a bank that employs, what What was their, their, their peak? A hundred, some ungodly number, 90,000? 150,000 employees. Right, so 2% is, okay, so only 3,000 of our employees <laughs> are engaging in criminal fraud. can happen to anybody. Yeah, no, and what's what's hilarious about that is that that, that statistic is just completely made up, right? Oh, who, even worse. Who cares about, if your denominator includes janitors, right? Right. And, uh, and, what and percentage of uh, the people? Personal bankers right. who are exposed to individuals were engaging in this kind of illegal activity and what you you're framing and where I completely agree with you is that's not all we care about but also aggressive behavior right so John Stump built this model Wells Fargo was with with JP Morgan Chase these were the two banks that nailed it right these were the ones these are, this is not a city group this is certainly not Washington Mutual right and it's not Bank of America Right. This is Wells Fargo built its brand on being a phenomenal consumer and commercial bank as opposed to an investment. Hundreds bank. of years old. The the stagecoach is not a coincidence no. that it's their corporate logo. They've been around for centuries. They've been around for a very long time, and they've been uh, very good at the work that they've that they've done, or so it was uh, was reported. But that compensation structure and that culture. It's so massively important because it created not only the incentives to engage in bad behavior. Um, but engage, to engage in, in practices that I think most people would say, that's zero sum, and you're robbing your customers. Right. You're not creating value here. You're just right? transferring it from your customers to yourself. To yourself. And you're doing it in a way that's trying to deceive your customers as to what the value proposition is here. So let me give you the example. Right, This was the mantra, eight is great, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea here is that cross-selling uh, is distinct from upselling. Upselling is, you know... You go in, you want to buy a Toyota Corolla, and you walk out with a Lexus. That's that's upselling. Cross-selling is, do you want fries with that, right? So mm -hmm. you come in, you want something, and they say, you want that thing, but you also want all this other stuff, too. So that was auto insurance, checking accounts, credit cards. Let's count to eight. I'd invite right. our listeners to do the same thing. Okay. What are the eight products or services that you need to have in the same financial institution? All right, let me see if I could guess. So we'll start with saving and checkings account. Two. That would right. be two. Yep. Mortgage. Yeah, so again, we're going to re-examine why you'd want your mortgage to be at the same place you have a checking right. and savings account. But yes, mortgage certainly counts. Credit cards. Credit card counts. Bank loans. Bank loans, personal loans. We're up to five. Um, insurance. They were doing some insurance products. Some, they had some insurance products, including gap insurance, including auto insurance on your insurance. So mm -hmm. meaning if you... Uh, homeowner's insurance as homeowner's well. Homeowner's insurance as well. So now we're up to seven. And uh, the only other thing I could guess is 401k retirement accounts. That absolutely would be one. So that would be, you would be uh, a very good Wells Fargo banker and being able to say, all right, I got to eight. Now I got to go sell these, right? Now, let me give you an example. Eight of a, is great. Eight okay, is great. That's that hilarious. That's their mantra. Now, let me tell you uh, uh, the story of a, of a company <laughs> that engages in massive cross-selling to my utter delight as a customer, and that's mm -hmm. Amazon. Sure. Right? I have, if I've, you like X, you will love Y. I buy in the same day, I've purchased books and chainsaws from Amazon.com, mm -hmm. right? And I've seen myself going 
to this thing, and they say, oh, if you want that, then you're going to need this other thing, too. And I'll think about it and say, yes, please and thank you, Jeff Bezos. I will want that thing. But they offer that to you. They don't send it to your house and say, by the way, we sent this to you, whether (laughs) you ask for it or not. Right. So there's no fraud here. My point is that Wells Fargo's problem is so much worse than the fraud, right? Because what Amazon is offering to me is sometimes these other things that I already want at less for less money, or even if it's more money than I would get at Lowe's or somewhere else, uh, it the sheer convenience of having it all in a single system is extremely high. Now, let me ask you and our listeners, if you are shopping for financial services, whether we're talking about a credit card, a savings account, or a mortgage, what do you care about? Care about the best cost and the highest level of service, highest quality of service. So... The best cost first, right? That's an interest rate phenomenon. Mm-hmm. What service do you need for your mortgage? So, well, I, I want to know that I could set up an auto pay. I okay. want to know that I'll get credited um, yeah. on a timely basis and that things like insurance isn't going to be forced down my throat yep. and that I could prepay my real estate taxes, add that to the monthly, little things like that to just make our financial life a little easier. Absolutely. And almost all of that is standardized across the industry. Almost so, everything so you So then you're talking cost. So you just are talking cost. You're talking interest rates. So credit card, absolutely. If you carry a consumer debt, absolutely, there are going to be issues of service. For most people, what they want is the lowest interest rate right. and the most benefits of a credit card. For a savings account, what people are looking for are, you know, a suite of bells and whistles. Can I deposit a check using my phone? Can I do this or can I do that? But again, ATMs, ATMs, sure. location, all of this ends up mattering. But by far the most important thing is going to be the price point. And that's where Wells Fargo, I think, stepped into an extremely aggressive territory, well short of fraudulently manufacturing services that you never wanted, never asked for, right? That's the fake account scandal. And my point is, how do we get here? We got here from a rotten culture Mm -hmm. that decided we're going to make price point, which is the only thing that most consumers really care about, to be of secondary consideration. And we're going to try and convince them that while there are economies of scale to be had for Wells Fargo and consolidating customers, those economies are not really shared with the customers themselves. That's what makes me uncomfortable about Wells Fargo. And that's why I think I feel a little bit more encouraged in the post-Wells era. There are not only Wells, but other banks, too, are dialing way back on this kind of aggressive marketing. Um, because I think that it's pretty hard to justify when the thing that people want is, are you going to beat this by a few basis points? Because when we're talking about a 30-year mortgage. A few basis points matters a lot. Huge, huge difference. So it's 2018. We're, we're uh, in the middle of the summer. Has Wells Fargo cleaned up their acts? Because we still see these little eruptions every now and then of more things leaking out that all date back to the same era, but we hadn't previously heard about this. To those who are in PR or crisis management or even the financial institutions itself, I mean, Wells Fargo has literally become the textbook case. I teach it to my MBAs. Of what not to do? Of what not to do. <laughs> it was death by a thousand cuts. So they didn't get out in front of it. You, you want to disclose it. stuff yourself so you're beating everybody else from revealing yeah. it. And then it w- there was never really a, a, a believable apology. And then on top of that, at a certain... So I've never had a Wells Fargo account. They could be great. They could be terrible. I've never experienced it personally. But seeing the run of news at a certain point I was saying to a friend, hey, at this point, if you have a Wells Fargo account still, you've tacitly given them permission to do whatever the hell they want. Because <laughs> if they haven't scared you away, what do they have to do 
to chase you away. And it doesn't look like that many people hit the eject button with them. So they did. Yeah, that's that's what's been so interesting to me. I mean, I am not uh, I'm not uh, an active investor um, for a lot of different reasons, not least because I comment on these things and I want conflicts of interest. Well, but, if you're talking about cost, I'm going to assume you're like many other financial professors and your low cost index Vanguard, yeah, etc. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And not that I'm um, I don't take that as an absolute dogma like some of my colleagues do. Um, there have been times where I've been tempted into markets, um, and one of them was to short Wells Fargo. I didn't do it, but How I was, long ago uh, was this? Being in 2014 or something, so mm-hmm. it was about a year. The LA Times broke the story in 2013. We didn't get the uh, settlement with the CFPB and the comptroller of the currency until 2015. So in these two years, that's another very important question about supervisors. What was taking so long? The journalists knew this, right? Right. But it was not, uh, uh, we didn't get a good sense of it, not just by 2015, but we're still getting the news later. But if I had shorted Wells Fargo's stock, I would have lost money, right? Their stock has done well. This has been a boom time, right? I might have been able to hedge it and still shorted the stock uh, relative to places like J.P. Morgan um, or Goldman, and maybe I would have made some money then. But it's been extraordinary how much of their brand equity and their business has not been compromised by what has been a stunning turn of headlines week after week after the, week. The old joke is news is old. By the time it's in the papers, lots of people already figured out yeah. and probably made their bets based on that. I think that tells us a few different things. Number one, a good, there's a good version and a bad version of what we can, how we can interpret those events. The good version for Wells is that it does have an extremely robust balance sheet mm-hmm. and business such that this scandal, though lots of people are reading about it and talking about it, ends up not mattering that much for the overall value of the franchise. You know, sure just keeps people where they are. It's a, listen, I got everything on auto pay to move my account. is a big pain in the butt. Yep. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother, right. The bad version, in other words, saying that the size and diversification of their businesses and on whatever parameters you want to choose, geography, uh, business lines, other things, uh, has protected them from scandal. That's the version that's good for Wells. The version that is bad for Wells is that the sheer complexity and size of these financial institutions make them totally unaccountable, even when the facts are breathtakingly damning. Right? You will never see a clearer-cut example of abject criminality in consumer banking that is as widespread as this. Right? right? This was absolute fraud. I think you're not cynical enough if you think nothing is going to be worse than this. Because every time I've said that throughout my professional career, what could ever be worse than fill in the blank? Yeah. Go from Enron to WorldCom to you you pick it. Every time I I think I become too cynical, the rejoinder comes back at me, just wait. That's pretty great. you know, to for me to find another example, it would have to be Citigroup's predecessor, National City, mm-hmm. during the run up to the Great Depression, uh, which which motivated the original passage of Glass Steagall, where you would get these salesmen coming uh, from the banking side, or sorry, from the capital market side, looking at bank customers. And you'd see, okay, I've got a retired couple, their nest egg's ten thousand dollars, I've got it in a savings account. Go to their house 
swindle them out of it and make them invest in Latin American mining operations. That's a that's a real example. That's a perfect thing for a, a young couple's uh, retirement account. Yeah, right. They're in there. They're they're going to live another ten years, and now you're right. speculating. And of course, that goes bust. All their money is gone. Right. Um, and there's there are these letters that you can read uh, in uh, in the Library of Congress where people are just writing to their members of Congress during the Glass-Steagall hearings, uh, uh, the PCORA hearings mm-hmm. that preceded Glass-Steagall, saying, please ask Charlie Mitchell why he would target us. My, I'm sitting now next to my wife's coffin. She died early because of the stress of realizing oh, our nest egg was gone. So that was a big scandal. I see Wells Fargo as being pretty similar in scope but now compare the difference in the reactions to them, right? I think we've become inured to these sort of things. That was the takeaway from the great financial crisis. It, my cynicism is whatever you think, it's much worse. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve and central bankers. And I'm going to begin with something from Lombard Street, a description uh, of the money market, Uh A very famous quote is, lend freely at a penalty rate against good collateral. That that comes supposedly been called Badgett's dictum. The first question is, by the way, the whole purpose of that is an articulation of how central banks should respond to a panic to avoid a full-blown crisis. First, who is really the author of that rule? You suggest that it wasn't Badgett. No, it's 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 not Walter Badgett. You can read the entire book, uh, 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 you know, as many times as you'd like. You'll never find Badgett's dictum. He hints it. around it. He, he talks hints. about lending freely and liquefying. Yeah, he's got two chapters that are basically about lending freely. Mm-hmm. Um, he does talk a little bit about what was good collateral, but mostly uh, as a, a set of shared assumptions that everyone would have about what constituted good collateral, um, which were essentially, you know, uh, good collateral was going to be uh, uh, on these commerce bills, which is basically here we've got a contract already set up that refers to real business that's been done. It's not speculative, right? That's good collateral. Right. And that is not our definition of good collateral. Good collateral can be securities, right, Good mm-hmm. uh, uh, today, and that would not have been his definition. He mentions that just in passing. Penalty rate, there's a sentence about the idea that, like, well, you want to you make it hurt a little. Right. right. Charge a premium above what you could get if there wasn't a panic yeah. in order to discourage this behavior in the future. But interestingly enough, the rest of the book is about uh, not doing that very thing, right? Uh, because if you make it, if you stigmatize the lending um, by a central bank, which a penalty rate would do, um, then you've created the very scenario that Badgett's saying you shouldn't do. So there is no Badgett's dictum. He never said that. His book is not about that. And indeed, it's ironic because you know one of the things that he writes in that book is that there are people are so uh, eager for you to say, "All right, well." are central banks good things or bad things? And if you say, well, it's complicated, they're like, well, I don't care. <laughs> right? Welcome to uh, the modern world of politics. And uh, he's writing this, you know, in the late 1860s. This is published in 1873. And then he also said, you know, people just don't have appetite for long books. They want short sentences. Uh-huh. And what's hilarious to me about this is the thing that Badgett's book is remembered for is a short sentence that he never wrote. <laughs> um, so who did write that? You know, it's uh, it's hard. I, that, I would be interested if our, if our listeners can track this down. I haven't succeeded. I can tell you two people who have popularized it. Mm-hmm. Um, one is Paul Tucker, who is a, a great uh, scholar and practitioner of central banking. He's got a new book 
that's just come out. Somebody you might consider for uh, for your own uh, for your podcast and and uh, and for this radio show. He was the deputy governor at the Bank of England during the crisis, and he has has written a lot about this idea. And he's the one who's quoted most often for Badgett's dictum. It's never Badgett being quoted. It's always somebody else quoting Paul Tucker. Right. Creating Badgett's dictum, but again, he did. It, uh, Paul didn't create this, right? He's referring to something that came before. Um, ben Bernanke is the other one who's really popularized this, but only two-thirds of Badgett's dictum. Ren mm-hmm. Fre- Len Freely, uh, oh, maybe one and a half uh, of it. <laughs> Len Freely against... So-so. Eh, So-so collateral, but don't do a penalty rate, right? Uh, uh, and But... You know, Bernanke's book, um, his memoir, The Crisis, he talks... The Courage to Act. The Courage to Act, yeah, right. Yeah. And he notes uh, when he game-fed chair in 2006, and the chair has a, a personal library in, uh, in his office, and he said, I brought Badgett's Lombard Street and put it there. Now, now Ben Bernanke is a, a very sophisticated financial historian. Uh, I assume he's read Lombard Street, but mm-hmm. I've ne- his book would not give you evidence that uh, that he had. Did you overlap with Bernanke when you were at Princeton? He was the head of the economics department. No, no, I have met him a couple of times before, um, and uh, you know we've exchanged views on a variety of topics. I think that he's a remarkable public servant, a terrific scholar, um, and I always leave reading any paper or, or even blog posts he's written feeling smarter. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've also had our differences. We got into an argument about um, an assertion that he makes that I think is false, which is that the reason the Fed didn't bail out Lehman Brothers is that it lacked the legal authority to do so. That's been the claim. Yeah. I have a pet theory on that. I'm curious as to what yours is. Well, it's, it, legally, it's false. That's not correct. They did have the legal authority to do it. To bail out uh, a broker-dealer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the statute is, in unusual and exigent circumstances, mm-hmm. a term which is sounds very heavy but is not defined. Right. Unusual and exigent is Tuesday. Okay. Right, yeah. Could it, it could be. So long as five members of the Board of Governors vote in favor, which he had, uh-huh. and the Federal Reserve Bank, who's di- in whose district uh, uh, the institution exists- New York. S- in New York, uh, is uh, that the loan is secured to the satisfaction of the Federal Reserve Bank. Mm-hmm. Secured to the satisfaction. What does that mean? Well, it's not defined. Right. Although, quite bluntly, we know there was a ton of fraudulent uh, shenanigans going on at Lehman Brothers with the famous Repo 105 and... All of that. So you might say, well, then we're not satisfied by that. But that's a discretionary determination. To say mm-hmm. we lacked legal authority to do so is false. It says we were not satisfied by the collateral presented. It's a different Different, different thing. Which, of course, raises the question... Then why did they really let it hit the pavement? Well, then why is AIG different? Their answer is, well, because they had a good insurance thing, uh, business, business going on. Right. Lehman had all kinds of profitable businesses within their 20,000 co- uh, corporations under their uh, uh, their parent company. So again, was that the right decision or the wrong decision? There's a separate set of questions. Was it politically motivated or not? Should it have been a separate set of questions? Did they have the legal authority to do so? Well, yes, of course they did. And this isn't just me being an obnoxious lawyer saying, well, look at this. The idea that they lacked the legal authority to do so was the single defining idea that motivated the passage of Dodd-Frank. Huh, that's fascinating. And so I think that that ends up mattering a huge amount. Uh, it just isn't, isn't correct. So I wish I was a fly in the wall when they were having this internal debate. But my pet thesis is simply um, at one point, Early in the spiral of Lehman Brothers, uh, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway had the conversation with Dick Fold, made a lowball offer because he's a value investor, and to everybody who was an employee at Lehman Brothers, 
lasting regret, Dick Fold said, this guy's trying to steal the company for $3 billion. It was only a small percentage ownership, and he rejected Buffett. And I can't help but think from a moral hazard perspective, the debate going on with Bernanke and Geithner and, hey, how could we bail out this guy when he turns down Warren Buffett, who, by the way, later made a much more advantageous um, loan to a much better bank, Goldman yeah, Sachs. Yeah, so Fold's folly trade. turned out to uh, benefit Goldman and, and Buffett. Here's my friendly amendment to your, your theory. I would call it Fold's Follies because mm-hmm. Buffett was one in a series of suitors who came knocking and Dick Fold was trying to value the company as though it were 2005, not right. 2007 or eight. And so uh, I think it was just spectacular hubris Yes, that I think the regulators, including Tim Geithner and Hank Paulson, couldn't fathom. So one of the one of the conspiracy theories that a lot of people who I think are pretty sophisticated people endorse, payback. It was payback. Payback. It's yeah. the Goldman versus Lehman thing. Right. And I just don't buy it. I no, think to the either. extent that that mattered at all. And by I, the way, remember that if anybody was payback, there was Bear Stearns. Go back to yeah. long-term capital management. They didn't yeah. want to. They didn't want to yeah. be part of the consortium that rescued. Who they were the prime broker for. Yeah. So when when Bear hit the deck earlier than Lehman, the deal that was actually Jamie Dimon stole it right out from under, uh, I think it was Wachovia mm-hmm. was looking at it then. Um, and then to get the Fed to say, we'll commit to backstop if this goes over $29 yeah. billion worth of junk. You saw some great deal makers in the crisis, and some terrible deal makers. Dick Fould was spectacularly not one of them. Awful, and so I think that that ends up having a lot to do with it. But I think the biggest explanation of all does come from Hank Paulson. He's the source for a Wall Street Journal editorial. This is after conservatorship, so it's after the first week in September for Fannie Uh and Freddie. Senior administration officials uh, assures us, or in uh, 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 the following quote, there will be no political solution for Lehman, meaning there's going to be no public money for Lehman. Right. All right. And I think at that point, given the bipartisan furor over Bear Stearns mm-hmm. and Fannie and Freddie, that they had to find someone to say no to, and they just didn't recognize that this was going to be the financial cataclysm uh, uh, that uh, that ended up happening. See, I. Let me let me push back a little bit from okay. Bailout Nation, and yep. I look at Lehman Brothers as merely the first trailer in the trailer park. When the tornado came through, everybody who was leveraged up with bad paper that was relying on either subprime or alt-day mortgages and derivatives, mm-hmm. now they were one of the worst. Bear Stearns was pretty bad. AIG was terrible. Lehman was one of the worst. But whether Lehman was rescued or not, that tornado was going through. You had home prices run up so much, and now we're collapsing that that whole derivative unwind was going to take place, even if now, if you want to argue Lehman Brothers precipitated yeah. the conflagration spreading faster, yep. well, you know who knows? It's hard to argue against that. So let me ask you to put you uh, put you on the hot seat then, even though I'm the guest and you're the host. <laughs> Good decision, bad decision on Lehman Brothers. Assume they had the authority to do so, which I'm telling you they did. I'm the wrong person to ask that. I'll give you the answer, but the reason I'm the wrong person is I believe that, see that sort of uh, Doric building with the columns over there (laughs) called the bankruptcy court? That's there for a reason. Now, if you want to say we're going to take all these banks and have Uncle Sam be debtor in possession. So uh, my favorite example is Bank America, Merrill Lynch, that whole countrywide. Let's go over there. 
We take all the debts, stick it into, sell it. Um, there's no such thing as toxic assets. There's only toxic prices. Uh-huh. So this at a dollar, uh, hundred cents on the dollar is a disaster, but twenty cents on the dollar for something worth thirty-seven is is a winner. Yep. So you sell that stuff off. You clean up Merrill Lynch. You spin them out. You clean up Bank of America. You spin it out. You clean up Countrywide. You spin it. You go through this whole process. You do it one after another. Now. Maybe the Dow doesn't stop at 6,000. Maybe it goes to 4,000. Maybe unemployment gets worse. But you end up on the other end with a much healthier financial system. So I'm in favor of following the law, having people suffer the consequences of their actions. By the way, I would claw back all the stock options that all these executives would get. But tear the Band-Aid off. It's really painful in 07, 08, 09 but in 2010, you have a healthy economy, even though what we did ended up saving the system, we're still dealing with the ramifications yeah, of that. Yeah. And so my answer is you, the reason nobody would come in and buy Lehman Brothers is I think their liabilities vastly out, outweighed um, their debt. The fact that I'm drawing a blank on his name, the guy who came in and took over AIG, he did a wonderful oh, job, yeah. passed away from cancer, not oh, much. Uh, uh, right. AIG had a real business. It yeah. had a real cash flow. The The 400 people in the AIG financial products group were a debacle. Yeah. But you could have carved that out, and, sure. and they ultimately did, and that's why AIG is now a functional business. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's intriguing. I mean, the, the counterfactual you're, you're, at, you're telling us about, uh, I think, is pretty persuasive on the following assumption, and that is that the depths that we would have reached in 2007, 8, and 9- Cleansing. Would have been cleansing. Yes. Rather than fatal, right? Because we've seen national systems that collapse not to stand up again. Right. Right. Argentina is the great example. Sure. If you and I were having this conversation in 1890, and we were in Buenos Aires, right? And we said, hey, let's make a bet. America or Argentina 100 years from now? I think both of us would have said, well, we can't find a counterparty, right? We would have both bet on Argentina uh-huh. uh, as a, 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 just a much more secure Weimar system. Weimar Republic. Go down the list of whenever there's a crisis. So, and that was, uh, if you like the book uh, Lords of Finance, yeah, yeah. that was imposed from the outside, yeah, but it's still. A great, it's a great, a great example. So my the, the question really for us in evaluating these counterfactuals is, where is that threshold where under which the U.S. doesn't recover ever? Right, or it covers in something that we don't recognize. That is the uh, $4 trillion question. Right, Can right. you stick around a bit? I have a bunch yeah, more questions. You bet, you bet. We've been speaking with Professor Peter Brown of Wharton. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to wonk out over all things central banks. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you so much for doing this. I'm I'm really enjoying wonking out on fed stuff and i have a ton of uh a ton of questions for you that we didn't get to the wells fargo stuff is just fascinating oh, i mean and we barely are scratching the surface i mean that, 
That's just astonishing to here's, me. Here's the thing. The one thing I'll say about Wells Fargo, I think, that our listeners might want to know is that they made a choice uh, in hiring a new chairman of the board, a chairwoman of the board, Betsy mm-hmm. Duke, former governor of the Federal Reserve Board. Oh, sure. And this news was the first thing out of Wells Fargo, including their independent director's uh, uh, report about what had happened, that made me think this entire thing isn't just a, 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 a smoldering pile they finally on top of it they finally done something they finally done something real and so i have high hopes for for duke and i think that she's uh a a really first-rate banker intellect Uh, she understands the government so i I, she understands crisis so i'm i'm i I think that they might have turned a corner but again grab your popcorn the story is not over (laughs) so we we really didn't talk about any of your books the (laughs) book that's out yeah. Um, that came out last year, The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. What motivated you to write that? How much of that is you pushing back at all the crazy conspiracy stuff that we see about the Federal Reserve? You know, it's, it's me trying to stand in the middle of the conspiracists and the Fed apologists who see the Fed as this great temple of reason, mm-hmm. right, that is just doing the same thing NASA does when it sends, you know, the Voyager out to Mars. By the way, I call that... Um, Economists all have physics penis envy. Yeah, that's the, it's exactly that. And and the problem is that when we're talking about an uncertain present with a past that we've not fully understood, making projections about an unknowable future, mm-hmm. right? We're not talking about physics, right? We're talking about something else. And it's not that there's no technical content in what the Fed does. And that's where the conspiracists are wrong. Right, it's not being taken over by uh, different ideologues. There is technical, there is mm-hmm. a technical apparatus. It's just that inside the Fed, that technical apparatus isn't enough and can never be enough to answer some of these big questions. Should Lehman live or die? Uh, should we take interest rates into negative territory? Right, uh, and the, all these other kinds of questions. The unknown unknowns, nobody can answer because humans are involved, and who knows what we're going to do. So I saw my role. You know, as a lawyer and as a financial historian, not an economist, although conversant in in monetary economics and finance, to be the guy who says it's I'm going to draw the curtain back, right? We're going to look at the man, not the wizard, right? And it's going to be okay, all right? We're going to do, and we're going to see that this extremely interesting, fascinating, important, powerful central bank is not uh, uh, held hostage by a bunch of greedy bankers, right? But it's not the wizard. So let's talk about the wizard. Um, I think some people um, blame Bernanke for the financial crisis, which I think is sort of um, really misunderstanding the timeline. But the question I'll ask you is, how responsible do you think Alan Greenspan is for the great financial crisis? That's great. Um, There's a... there's. Alan Greenspan has the unfortunate uh, status of being pilloried on the left and the right for totally different things. Right. So the left sees him as giving away the store from a regulatory and supervisory perspective, right? Well, he said a couple of things where, um, hey, you know, the banks will take care of themselves. They have their reputation to worry about. Or um, in California, where the Democratic Congress, uh, Democratic State Assembly purposefully did not regulate any of the private lenders, uh, Greenspan said, hey, these are the innovators. Why do we want to get in their way? So it absolutely is is, uh, consistent with his ideology. Greenspan also had the misfortune of publishing an extremely candid memoir 
where he admits completely that, yeah, I had no appetite for regulation. I, and he said that he took care of it by saying, well, I'm just going to recuse myself because I ideologically am opposed to this. What happens in any organization where the boss says, look, you can do what you want. Here's my vision, but you make your decision. Do people say, okay, great, well, I disagree with your vision, so I'm going to do mine? Or do they say, <laughs> oh, well, let's guess what his vision is and implement it? And, of course, it's the latter, and that's what happens at the Fed. So the left sees the Fed as the only governmental institution with both the credibility and the perspective on the economy to do anything about the underwriting crisis. Fair right? enough. Uh, and then does nothing about it. And so the right, what's the right's criticism? The right's criticism is that he played God. And he, rather than having a monetary policy rule that would have increased interest rates much more rapidly after 9-11 and the, the tech uh, bubble implosion, he didn't. He felt like that he knew what was better than uh, than monetary policy rules. And as a result, he started blowing bubbles. Right? So the thing I love about that, I totally agree with your observation, but there's something deliciously ironic about an Ayn Rand libertarian who says we should not have government intervention in anything <laughs> unless I have my hands on the wheel and then, hey, watch, the, hold my beer, watch this. Yeah, right. It's an amazing contradiction, and in real time, very few people pointed it out. Milton Friedman was one who did, right? So he was as consistent a libertarian as you ever find, um, uh, with only a couple of exceptions in his youth. He helped create the payroll deduction system, for example. It was something that he regretted the rest of his life, thought taxes should be voluntarily given. Um, <laughs> that's adorable. Yeah, right. That's, that's the libertarian fervor right there. But, uh, but Milton Friedman was a very smart guy, and he was asked in the 1990s. I mean, Greenspan made a decision that he's credited, um, that is credited with adding, you know, a trillion dollars of wealth and uh, countless jobs to the economy. And that is by saying in the 1990s, uh, we should not raise interest rates too early because what we're seeing, in part because of the technology, uh, in part because of other uh, factors uh, in the economy, a dramatic expansion in productivity rather than an overheating inflationary economy. And so he convinced the other members of the Federal Open Market Committee in the 1990s to hold tight. And one of the hawks on the other side of that was Janet Yellen, right? Hmm. Not the dove on the other side of his hawkishness, right. but the opposite. And uh, and he was right in the sense that the economy continued to expand even after uh, you know the the stock as, uh, stock uh, tech stocks uh, fell apart where they bottomed out was substantially higher and of course they went right up again than where others were calling the um, the top of the market and so that idea was that he's the wizard right he's the maestro. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that ends up be feeding this idea, when it's good, it's great, right? But when it's bad, you have a villain. And again, it's bipartisan villainy um, there. I think that's a fair assessment, right? Yeah. He, he, when, as long as everything's going well, hey, listen, when the party's in full swing, everybody loves an easy bartender. Yeah, right. But the next morning, when you're hungover and sick to your stomach, it's, can't believe what sort of junk this guy was pouring into my exactly. glass. And I think from the perspective, I mean, there's a lot to say in favor and against both of those narratives on the left and the right. So some of the, those who critique the critique on the left say um, there, is, there was no appetite in America for taking a hard line on bankers. And if Greenspan had done it, he would have been pilloried just as anyone else was. What, what about either the Taylor rule or any other assessment that 
when you play it out to the last step, says, hey, we should have rates a little higher yeah. than these. You know, that's where the Greenspan put, more or less, came yeah, from. that's exactly right. And, and Taylor himself, although not at the time very much. You know, John has made a big career since the crisis and, uh, and uh, really raking the Fed over the coals. But he wasn't doing it at the time. And even the original pa- papers that created the Taylor Rule were much more tentative than his certainty today, which makes me uh, much less sure about the Taylor Rule. I'm opposed to writing the Taylor Rule into, into legislation. Um, but that is the critique. The Taylor Rule would have said in 2001, 2004, interest rates should have been higher. Right. By as or much 96, as 97, 98. Same, same situation, mm-hmm. right? It should have been higher by not just 25 basis points, but by 200 basis right. points, right? Um, or more. And so the problem with that narrative, though, Ben Bernanke um, has pointed this out, is that the real estate bubble started, it predated you know, the initial uh, departure it predated the monetary policy phenomenon. I disagree with um, Bernanke on this. Hmm. Years ago, when he was leaving the Fed, there was a lunch, a luncheon that I got to attend, and the conference table was, you know, three miles long. He's in the middle of it. I'm in the opposite corner. So I had to scream my question to the, And that came up, and the pushback I gave, and I'll repeat it now, was – Go back to 1987, yeah. right? You have the crash. Greenspan comes in, like many new bankers. They're tested immediately. And you pretty much had the peak in real estate, at least in New York and other metropolitan areas, in that 87 to 89 area. If you bought a condo in 89 in Manhattan or a co-op, you didn't get back to break even until like 96, 97. Hmm. The whole concept that real estate never goes down, that's before we not even talking about the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you look at a, a chart, you'll see we peaked, took a while to get back over. And my personal experience has been that in the mid to late 90s, remember the bull market really began in 82. In the mid to late 90s, a lot of people, and this is an anecdote, it's not data, but I saw so much of it that I can't believe there isn't a good data source on this. A lot of people said, hey, I'm going to roll out a little bit of my equities and trade up in real estate. Mm-hmm. I'm in a three-bedroom. I want to be a four-bedroom on an acre. I'm, I'm on an acre. I want to be waterfront. Yep. I'm waterfront. I want to be at a bigger house. Whatever it was. And that's what – it was a combination of all this wealth that was created in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Rates were still relatively attractive. And it, it just was the demographic cycle that people started to to roll up and out. And then what could have sort of faded in most most cycles, the economy drives real estate. Following the combination of the dot-com crash and 9-11, when rates dropped, I want to say they were below 2% for about three years and they were about 1% for a year. That's what started that giant spiral. And following, there was no refractory period post uh, dot com collapse. You had real estate then driving the economy for the next, well, five, six, seven mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. And that's when everything kind of went vertical. Yeah. And then add to that, you start running out of people to buy houses and you move to subprime and alt A and you bring in another 10 or 20 million potential sure. home buyers. Sure. You know, a, a buddy of mine used to call that um, renters with an option to default. People mm-hmm. who really, my favorite scene in The Big Short is Steve Carell is talking to the stripper yeah, yeah, who yeah. owns a rental property. She's renting out. 
He goes, you own a house that you rent out? She goes, no, I own six. Yeah, right. And the light goes off. Oh, this is a disaster. This is going to collapse. So when I look at, when Bernanke says that, you know, yeah, you you had a huge booming economy for a decade plus, and you still, a good chunk of that real estate was upside down for a while. Once you crossed, I want to say 96, 97, yeah, real estate started to move, but you look at o two, o three, o four, o five, o six, o seven. Yeah, that's explosion. It, it yeah. went vertical, so yeah. it's kind. Of, I, 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 I find you. he's the same thing with the uh, excess cash looking for a home. I always thought that argument was a little. You tell me how disingenuous is is the? There's too much savings. That's our problem. Well, this around the world. This gets to um, my own ideology, which is that I am a radical. Uh, uncertaintist. So <laughs> I love I, that. I uh, I I don't have a strong view on these questions. What I love doing is structuring those arguments and understanding what would I have to know in order to endorse one or another. And so here's what I would have to know. I would have to know more about the relative availability of credit, mm-hmm. right? That securitization, the explosion of securitization. Uh, and the demand that securitization, I'm talking about second, third generation, into CDOs and beyond, that downward interest rate pressure was putting on the system uh, and how we would look at that if the federal funds rate was higher. Mm-hmm. Because one view uh, that Taylor and others assert is that these move in absolute lockstep, right? So federal funds in 2001 to 2004 if it had been raised 200 basis points or 300 basis points, then we would have seen such a dramatic break on the expansion of the housing system. Uh, I think there's some truth to that. And I want to know why, how did you reach that conclusion? I don't have a view on that. So I'll give you a short answer. Against the counterfactual, that interest rates were higher, and we still had that breathtaking enthusiasm that you can make this back on capital gains alone, and it will be swift and swifter than stock markets, right, and or other equities or other asset classes. So so here's the mechanism for that specific okay. thing, and I'm literally talking my book again. Yeah. So if you're running a pension fund, a foundation, anything that a charitable trust, um, anything that has a 5% bogey, we're going to give away 5% of our corpus each year in order to maintain our tax-exempt status. I think if you're a public pension fund, that's not a, a, a technical issue. But any of the giant foundations and charities and what have you have to do that. When when rates go to and the, it's easy to do that. Your expected returns for equities are six, seven, eight percent. Your expected return for bonds are three, four, five percent. A blended portfolio, hey, five percent is a no-brainer. How hard is that? Now you take rates down. You have a dot-com crash. So, oops, there's that. Then you take rates down to one percent. Now mm-hmm. my bonds aren't giving me anything. I think a lot of bond, a lot of fund managers went to their Bonds, either traders or mm-hmm. salespeople, whatever, said, listen, I can't live on 2%. I have to get me something that will generate a better return, or I have to find somebody who will. And so out at the same time, we have a, a small bit of securitized subprime. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, hey, just as safe as treasuries— I remember being pitched in 03. Mm-hmm. But look, it yields 150, 250 basis points more. Right. There's your 5% bo- bogey. And then all of a sudden, these mushrooms start to po- sprout after mm-hmm. rain mm-hmm. that the business model was not lend in order to 
get a yield on a mortgage, but lend in order to sell the papers to securitizers. And now that's what's feeding the beast. And that process... Now, I'm taking some liberties with the timelines, and yeah, I'm sort sure. of skipping some steps, but I think that is what led to that massive upswing in demand. I think, and again, I think it's a coherent view. This isn't, uh, this isn't something I'd call incoherent, or, or, and it's not a place where I've resolved these uncertainties for myself. And here's one of the reasons why I'm not walking out saying, Barry, you're right, Bernanke's wrong, I buy in the, to the mm-hmm. Taylor critique. I think it's exactly right. And part of it is, all right, so we've got the soup of factors that contribute to the financial crisis. Easy money is certainly one, right? And now let's talk about the five or six others that are contributing to and explain to me why the Fed's easy money is the factor that we call causal as opposed to just simply part of the soup. Global, but it is, global, it is, I agree, it is part of the soup. Uh, it, yeah, it's yeah. that. Take the Commodity Futures Modernization Act that said derivatives don't have to be regulated like other insurance products. Absolutely. So big that's factor. a big part of There's it. Right? The, global, the global savings glut is a massive factor, right? So we've got things that... I'm less convinced of that. You're, le- you don't, you're not convinced that there's a massive amount of money floating around? No, I'm less that... convinced that that is a factor causing a great financial crisis. It might have money said money. seeking yield. Yeah. Well, money yeah. seeking return, not necessarily yield. So in in coming up, so with the structure of collateralized debt obligations, right, mm-hmm. the financial innovation, which I still think is a pretty breathtaking piece of financial engineering For in sure. this sense, right? Being able, and it's not financial alchemy to say, we can actually, you know, traditional mortgage-backed securities are already tranched, but they're tranched in a way that isn't about diversification risk, right? It's just about pooling Right. Based on geography. How much risk do you want to take for how much reward? Yeah. And now the, CDOs are saying, well, we're going to mix this in first in, uh, first out, and we're just going to... If you had drawn the lines of CDOs differently, mm-hmm. right, so that the equity tranche was much larger and the AAA tranche was smaller, right? That's we, one option. The other option is, is garbage in, garbage out. If what was going... So one of... Again, I'm talking my book. One of my most stunning things I discovered... On the standardized documents for purchases of mortgages to be securitized, there is a 90-day warranty. A toaster. Mm-hmm. You buy a toaster, you get a 90-day warranty. If the 30-day mortgages that go into these CDOs, if they default within 90 days, you can put it back to yeah, us. Wow. Now, stop and think about that. This is a 30-year obligation, right? How many months is that? That's that's 360 months. If it defaults in the first three months, <laughs> yeah. you could put it back. Now, if that would have been a 24-month put, which is, hey, after two years, we've done our due diligence, yeah, that's it's on you, that would have been a big difference. But because of this was so complicated, n- in real time, nobody understood sure. the details. You could say nine. By the way, even that 90-day put, I think there was a great website called mortgageimplode.com. That tracked all of the mortgage underwriters who went belly up, and it was 400 of them because even with that short 90-day, there were people who, who they were doing the, the, the piggyback loans. They were doing the underlying mortgage yeah. and the home equity at the same time, yeah. so you're lending 120%, and they never made a payment. They yeah. lived rent-free for five years before they were eventually evicted. How could that ever go Wrong. I love this. So let me take a giant step back and tell you why our conversation right now oh, will prove out this truth about which I don't have uncertainty. Mm-hmm. 
the 2008 crisis is going to continue to be a masterclass in financial history mm-hmm. for decades to come. Just I as agree. the Great Depression has, you and I could have an identically structured conversation about what caused the Great Depression. And we'd have so many factors to discuss, and you would say, well, this thing mattered more than that thing. And I'd say, well, I think that thing is less, it's more complicated than that. And the reason why, for some people, that's just massively frustrating. Right. Give me an answer give me the, to identify the problem. Give me an answer that identifies the solution. Let's move on. So right? I will admit I'm ignorant as to what caused the Great Depression. Was it was it tariffs and trade? Was it was it Herbert Hoover? Was yeah. it uh, income inequality? I have no idea. Yeah. And I think that those conversations, which we can have uh, if you'd like, tell us a, a huge amount. And why I call that a master class rather than you know a, 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 just a, a circular track where we just chase each other endlessly is because by really digging deep, isolating the mechanisms, ask yourself what you don't know, what you'd need to know in order Mm -hmm. to answer that question, that's how we learn uh, about the mechanics of finance. And I think that's much, not not to dismiss my finance colleagues, but I would take that approach to things. I have taken that approach to things as a financial historian, as a lawyer, than, you know, learning the basics of Black-Scholes or CAPM or whatever else. Well, that works. So... Let's jump into our speed round, our okay. favorite questions. Great. Let's uh, let's let's run right through these. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about you. I'm a I'm a poor scrappy kid from Moore, Oklahoma. I'm the I'm the sixth of seven kids to a single mom. My dad died when I was nine, but most of my life, most of his life, uh, he just wasn't good at life. wasn't good at being <laughs> a human. Um, so how do you go from a poor kid in Oklahoma to Harvard, Stanford, Princeton. So um, the first was my brother, who is uh, nine years older than me, um, was approached. He did well on the SATs, and he was approached by an alum of Harvard saying, hey, kid like you shouldn't go to the local state school. You should go to Harvard, which just didn't compute for anyone in my family. And so he applied. He got in, and he went. And then nine years later, none of my other siblings did. Right, uh, Everybody else went to um, uh, to the state school's um, and then nine years later, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be like my big brother. And so I did well on the SATs. And I just, from the time I was a kid, I was like, I saw what happened to Sam, right? The way that people reacted to him, whatever Harvard meant, it meant something big. And so I applied, I got in and I went. And then, uh, I would love to say that from there, it was just all, uh, sunshine and buttercups. But the but it wasn't the cultural misfit between Moore, Oklahoma and oh, Cambridge, sure. Massachusetts. Was so massive, it was harder for me than some of my uh, friends were from, you know, who'd gone to elite private schools in uh, Singapore or, uh, or London or or Johannesburg Geneva. or Geneva right. or whatever else. So let me. Your brother is clearly a mentor. Who were some of your other early mentors? One of my very favorite mentors is a, prof- a sociology professor named Mary Waters. I ended up not studying really anything close to what she does. She does studies immigration, natural disasters, things like that. But she, at Harvard University, was the only professor I ever had that just took a keen personal interest in me. And uh, as a as a teacher, so not you know as a, as a scholar, I've gone in a different direction. But as a as a teacher, Mary has had a huge influence on me. Another one is Anat Admati, if you know. Her. Oh sure. So she. Oh, uh, the banker's new clothes. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's her. Um, she had a big, has and still has a huge impact on me as a scholar because of how fearless she is, 
right? So I'm this poor kid from Oklahoma. What business do I have talking about trillions of when, dollars? When you say fearless, in what way? She'll say something whether it's popular or not? What? Oh, man, she just goes to war against <laughs> people whose resources uh, vastly outstrip her own on something that seems as arcane as bank balance sheets, right? But right. banks should have much more equity, much less debt. And, uh, and she's just tireless. Uh, we don't agree on everything. Sometimes we'll bicker and argue, but she's been... Uh, just a profound mentor. Um, Let, let's talk about books, because we, we just mentioned uh, The Banker's New Clothes. What are some of your favorite books? When I was a kid, the only book that ever made me physically weep was Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember reading the unabridged version and just feeling like I'd been... I, it was the first time I thought, I don't have to actually have these experiences to experience them. Uh-huh. So that was that had a, a big impact. More, more recently, and perhaps less... Uh, uh, less saccharine than that. Uh, Sebastian Malaby is probably my favorite financial journalist. I've read everything he's written. So, um, um, more money than God. Is more money one than God book. is a and marvelous the, one. And what was the one on central banks? He, he wrote uh, the Man Who Knew, uh, mm-hmm. which is a biography of Alan Greenspan. I disagree with a lot of it uh, in terms of the overall framing, um, but it's it's just a superb product of exposition and research and. You know, the framing, he puts the policy questions where he intervenes. Uh, you can d- agree or disagree, but that's not the main contribution of the book. It's just terrific history. So if you like biography, Alan Greenspan's biography, it should have won a Pulitzer Prize in my view. Really? Oh, it's so good. Wow, that's impressive. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So um, I... When I started uh, as an undergraduate at Harvard, um, I was the president of the math club in my little uh, Oklahoma uh, high school, and I just could not do the math and economics at the time. That's so funny you say that, because in high school, I was a mathlete. And then I go to Stony Brook for applied mathematics and physics, thinking that I'm the shiznit, and I know the stuff... Like, I didn't have to study for Cal classes, and yeah, I would get A's. Yeah, yeah. And then you show up with people who are really serious. And suddenly it's like, oh, I'm not as good at this as I thought. These guys yeah. who actually put in the heavy lifting, do the work, they're running circles around yeah, me. That was the, Barry, you and I had exactly the same That's circumstance. Amazing. And so what I did in the face of that difficulty is I sprinted in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And away is, from economics. Uh, away from things that were challenging, at least initially, I was like, I have to do something that immediately validates my natural strengths. I tell my students, I tell my children that that is just one of the worst sins that you can commit against yourself. Uh-huh. Um, and so it took me, I was in graduate school for 10 years, during which I, t- I paid for all of my sins and neglect. I took a lot of economics classes. Uh, now I'm no brilliant mathematician, but there's nothing in, in basic economics that's outside of my, again, I'm not an economist, I paid for that. I'm glad I did, but that failure, that failure was so signal, and that is I ran away from what was hard, and huh. I wish I'd run in the other direction, and I eventually did run in that other direction, but it took a long time for me to make up for that. Tell us what you do for fun. I love racquetball and squash. Um, I love my children. I have three children, and I have a wonderful marriage with their, uh, with my wife, their mother, Nikki. Um I, uh, Nikki was just traveling this week, and so it was uh, uh, Daddy owns the owns the solo parenting thing, and we had a terrific time. Um, but my two year old is uh, he's an angel ninety percent of the time, a terrorist the other ten percent. <laughs> I was very happy to see Nikki come home last night. That was the ni- That's a good ninety ten balance. <laughs> so you deal with a lot of millennials and kids in college. 
any of them come up to you and say, I'm interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, they, uh, I do that all the time. I teach a financial regulation, financial history course. And I always ask, I say the same thing, right? So fintech is not a creature of post-2008. Fintech is as old as finance. Right. Look for ways in which rules have clumped when that should have been more evenly distributed, right? So that's, that treats like things unlike so maybe it's that there's a, a, a FICO credit score that treats people very differently and you see a big difference in interest rates and do an arbitrage. So that would be things like SOFI, right? That would be things like, um, you know, uh, looking at underwriting standards that might be different. Um, so that's one thing. So in, where law has clumped people, uh, or at the margins are basically identical, build a bridge, right? I think that's a really effective business strategy. Second is... We're all going to be terrible at uh, at calling uh, uh, bubbles at their at their peak and at their trough. But take the Wells Fargo model, nineteenth century version, which is, yeah, we're not going to be in the gold mining business. We're going to sell stuff to people who are in the gold mining business. So whether whatever your view of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, if you can design a system that provides services that are portable but that could cater to that, that's a good business to be in. Just so long as it's not so catered that you can't uh, that it's not not portable. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of central banks and Federal Reserve today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? That's, there's no wizard. There are women and men behind that curtain of substantial intellect, uh, talent, technique, ideology, judgment, values. They're people. And to humanize central banks is not to disparage them. It's to say they're people. And I am too. And I can engage in that debate. And I can do it intelligently or I can do it stupidly. Um, so let's do it intelligently. And let's not just say, all right, well, I'll just trust the wizards know what they're doing. Fascinating. We have been speaking with Peter Conti Brown. He is an assistant professor at Wharton School of Business, both grad and undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania. If you enjoy this conversation, then be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200 or so such podcasts that we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these conversations each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is my audio engineer producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.